Hi, this is Dishanti Sachi, and today we'll be mapping post-traumatic growth on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dushyanti Sachi. Dushyanti Sachi, LCSW, is a therapist and trauma counselor specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, and mindfulness for trauma, anxiety, depression, ADHD, and eating disorders. Sachi has also worked with rape and abuse victims for over 15 years, and she has consulted for the United Nations on policy and media to fight gender-based violence. Dushyanti, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Me too. I've actually, I've started following your work and I was so taken by the ways in which you weave together important and deep topics. And today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is post-traumatic growth. And I'm wondering if you can start us out by defining what post-traumatic growth is. Sure. It's a concept that's been studied since the 90s in psychology, though you see this concept in ancient times. And basically what it is, it's positive change from a major life crisis. So part of this, and, and we'll talk about this in the conversation, is a lot of us are really unprepared when bad things happen. When suffering happens, we have a lot of messages in our society that says you can have anything you want and envision the life you want and it'll appear. And, you know, a lot of the religious teachings across all the religions, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or whatever it is, focuses a lot on the blessings that we're going to receive. Even though those scriptural texts do talk about suffering, the focus is often on all the good things So this study of, well, how do we deal with the bad things and the suffering is part of where post-traumatic growth comes from. Because whenever patients come to you with, I'm going through this horrible thing and I, I can't believe this is happening to me and I can't imagine that this is my life. How could this happen to me? That's always one of the biggest pieces of beginning the process of healing is just accepting suffering as being a part of life. And the study of post-traumatic growth is really helpful with dealing with suffering because we can look at it and say, hey, what is growth that we can experience from suffering? This is beyond resilience. It's beyond that ability to just bounce back. 
This is actually an enlightened state where you have a higher level of functioning. So you actually leave the crisis better than when you first encountered it. I have chills just thinking about this, and there's so much that you just said that I want to anchor on before we even move forward. And one of those things is around suffering and how adverse we are to it. We not only don't expect it's going to happen, but we shy away from anybody who's experiencing it when we can't relate to their experience. I was speaking this morning with a colleague, an infectious disease doctor who lost his first child. And, you know, he has two children now, and the first child was lost during his wife's pregnancy. But we were talking about how apart you become from society because people don't know how to interact with grief and suffering. And then if we layer onto that, the suffering of being alone in the journey that we may be on in our suffering, and then the expectation that we're supposed to have growth from it, how do we face that as humans who are bound to experience these things in one way or another? Yeah, that's so insightful. And I I just want to mention, I've been listening to some of your conversations as well and have been blown away by these sorts of conversations, because I think what you're speaking to is the lack of conversation around suffering, whether that's when we are going through it personally or when it's happening in our world, because we want to push past it and be like, oh, I'm fine. You know, how are you doing? You don't often hear people say, I'm suffering. It's interesting you mentioned miscarriage because just this week I spoke to someone I'm very close to who just experienced a miscarriage. And she got on the phone with me and she said, I haven't told anyone about this besides her and her partner. So miscarriage is one of those things specifically that is silent suffering for a lot of people. It's a story that's not told. And the problem when we are silent in our suffering and what we've been through is that other people can't react to it because they don't even know that it happened or what it is. So increasing the conversation of, I am suffering, this is what it looks like, feels like, this is what might be helpful or supportive. And sometimes people don't know, but from these conversations, that's where you can get a sense of how to even begin to support somebody. Yeah. And that, that uh, our ability to articulate what we're going through, what we need and don't need I mean, that's difficult. And I know for me and my experience that some of what I would term post-traumatic growth came from my ability to sit in the discomfort of my experience, to be with it, to not have to explain it all the time, but to kind of get familiar with the fabric of it in my own body, in my own mind, in my own grieving process. Yeah. And that is so important is just being with the grief. What's interesting about post-traumatic growth is that not everybody experiences it. You see some people who leave a negative event worse from when it before it happened. And you see some people who experience this growth. So the study speaks to exactly what you're talking about with 
the first part of post-traumatic growth really speaks to the change that you make as an individual. And being able to sit in the pain is incredibly uncomfortable without pushing past it. One of my favorite quotes is, the only way to get over grief is to move through it. And we know that moving through it doesn't always feel good. But until you do that, you can't even begin to identify your needs because you don't even know what you're experiencing and might need in the first place. So there was actually a study that showed the more distress you experience with your suffering, the more post-traumatic growth you are likely to experience because you're not avoiding it. Avoidance is exactly what we don't want for growth through a negative experience. Mm. So that step one that you talked about, the change you make as an individual during that process of suffering that's our first step in thinking about post-traumatic growth? Yeah, it's one of the pieces that the type of change you make as an individual can really leave you better than when you started. One of the pieces of that, and there's, there's lots of pieces to this, is sitting with the grief. There's the acceptance of this is what's happening in my life. I don't like it, but this is what's happening. There's choosing your thoughts and making sure that your thoughts are accurate thoughts versus spinning out of control and ruminating. So for example, you can say, I feel very alone. And that's a true thought. But you can also say, I will always be alone and my life is horrible. So making sure you're choosing the thought that's actually accurate So Viktor Frankl, who I'm sure you've heard of, the Holocaust survivor who lost his mother, his father, his brother, his pregnant wife, and unborn child in the camp, is my favorite example of this. Because he came out, he's a psychiatrist, he came out of this experience. And one of his quotes that I love in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So he's talking about freedom while he's literally imprisoned, and he finds that freedom through his choice and attitude. And in psychology, it's not that we can choose our emotional state, but we can choose our thoughts. And I don't mean we have to think happy thoughts all the time, but let's choose accurate thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's even that reframing like you did what we're saying or the words we're saying to ourselves. I know I can speak in extremes sometimes, like nobody understands, right? And then I'm like, is that true that nobody understands? Because That's not actually accurate. (laughs) Yeah. And just that little process of being like, is that true? Or is that a lie? Or is that a distortion? Is so important in recreating neural pathways in the brain from an irrational or an inaccurate thought to an accurate thought. And depression will give us those irrational thoughts and those inaccurate thoughts. And a lot of this work happens in the subconscious too. So it's not like we're necessarily thinking all the time, I'm always going to be alone. 
but that's our feeling. And we have to sort of slow down. And when I work with patients, like even for them to begin hearing these thoughts that are swirling in their head is its own process. They have to slow down. They have to listen. They have to be really honest with what they're feeling. And then they start noticing these thoughts and say, hey, maybe those are not quite as accurate and maybe not so helpful in my healing. Yeah. When I hear you talking about this and I think about my own experience and how I might term it, like this is the spiritual journey. This is what it is. It's being in relationship with life and our internal fabric in this way. Yeah. I mean, it definitely takes you to a deeper place than you could ever get to otherwise. The good times in life are great and we all want them. But I think for most of us, We come to know ourselves. We come to know our spirituality. We come to understand our relationships. These are all different pieces we're touching on of post-traumatic growth, relationships, spirituality, all those things. More in the dark times, right? Which is the irony is in all this darkness, there can be so much about us that's illuminated. Yeah, it also makes me think as a parent, right, of a an adult child who's about to launch into the world, but out exploring things like I notice in myself my desire to keep him from suffering, which is really interesting, when I also know at the same time that, as you said, my suffering has made me who I am. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I just got chills when you said that because that's so powerful. That's because society has inundated us to shy away from suffering and to protect the people we love from suffering. And I think that's a natural instinct. We want to be safe. We want to be happy. But that's why these conversations are important to say, hey, is it the worst thing ever that there could be a very difficult experience that we don't enjoy and would not want to repeat, but we have become the person that we are and that part we would not change. And I think changing that messaging to the next generation, you know, to say, this is a part of life. This is something that most likely most people will experience. But guess what? Even though you may hate it and you will want it to end, There are things you can do where you can make choices, where you will come out of it better than when you started. So how do we help people to move through it and to have the potential to experience this post-traumatic growth? Because, you know, previous generations, I'm in my mid-50s, so I know my parents' generation, they suffered and they experienced suffering in all sorts of ways, but they also expected you to then like pick yourself up by the bootstraps and just get through it and get to the other side or move on. And I feel like we have to shift our perspective also in terms of how we actually move through it and help others to move through their grief, their suffering and invite this possibility. Yeah, I think that's where the study of these concepts and conversations is so important because it increases awareness of how do we deal with suffering? What is the benefit of suffering? What are active choices we can make? And while that survival instinct of previous generations helped them survive, and not everybody, but a lot of people, 
That's why you hear about things like breaking generational cycles in families. You know, I talk a lot about cycle breaking with my patients because they usually didn't learn this by themselves. They are coming from family systems to not talk about their problems, to not be open with each other, to not be aware of their needs. So now we are part of a world where we have podcasts like this and books and self-help that my parents definitely didn't have access to. Therapy was not so accessible and you couldn't just jump online and hear conversations like this. So they did what they needed to do, but psychology is a science and we now have information that can help us deal with this in a much healthier way that will be healthier for the next generation. So talk to us more about post-traumatic growth, what it is, how we support people, what have we not covered that helps us to understand what it actually is? Where is it coming from? Yeah. So some of the choices you can make to facilitate it. So we talked about the individual change, accepting it, you know, sitting in the grief, watching your thoughts. The fourth thing I would add to that is finding purpose in the pain which again, we see with Viktor Frankl, I mean, 75 plus years later, here we are talking about his book. Another big part of it are the relationships of the people around us. Are we able to lean into our support system? Are we able to navigate the messiness that can come into relationships when you are suffering? And this is something, again, I feel is like really neglected. A lot of relationships fall apart when somebody's going through something very difficult. I think there's a lot of being misunderstood that people can feel like you spoke to the isolation. So, you know, being able to strengthen communication, being able to forgive people, being vulnerable and being able to, like you said, sit with the grief in order to identify your needs and then be able to ask people around you for help in a very concrete, tangible way. These are all skills that you can learn and develop. Though the tendency may be to isolate into our shell, to not talk about it, to get annoyed with anybody who doesn't quite understand what we're going through. So we can make active choices to strengthen those relationships and that will be growth. So important what you're talking about. And I'm just thinking about as you're talking through these steps, how we as coaches, as clinicians, as practitioners, hold space for that process, even if we're not mental health practitioners, like just recognizing, seeing the person, anything you would say to those of us who are like, I'm not a mental health practitioner? Well, mental health, as we know now, is so holistic. There's not a patient that comes in in the initial assessment that I don't ask about their sleeping, their eating, their sex life, their, you know, physical systems. So just one, by whatever it is that you specialize, that in itself contributes to someone's mental health. But in terms of the empathy, compassion part, just really the open-ended questions where you listen and they feel heard right? How are you feeling? You know, I mean, it, it really can be as simple as that and validating that. This sounds like it's a really difficult time for you. And I'm really sorry to see that you're going through this. And even that, I mean, we know this through mirror neurons and there's neuroscience that supports this, that 
people feel that empathy, you know, and the neurons, I'm sure you know about this, the neurons fire, and it, it actually changes their brain patterns. So even that can be so powerful, especially coming from a practitioner where people are going for advice and counsel and they look up to them in a way. I think all of those touch points can contribute to healing. Yeah. And so many good points there about the mirror neurons and the empathy and then the oxytocin flows and that flows between both parties, the patient and the practitioner. I could talk to you about this topic all day, but I want to know, is there anything I didn't ask you about post-traumatic growth that you really just wish we all knew and took to heart in our practices? You know, the very briefly, the other three points that we have touched about is, you know, we've talked about gratitude, but I think there's ways to look at your life now and say, what is good about my life now? Maybe I am dealing with this illness, but I have, you know, all my financial resources or whatever, consciously making an effort to focus on the positive things in the present moment. The other part of it is, envisioning what you want your life to look like after? Like, do you feel something in your heart? What are the new possibilities? And the last piece about it was really what we touched on about spirituality. I mean, these are the times where we say, hey, why is this happening to me? Is there a God who is letting this happen? And why is it happening? And you see people turn towards their faith a lot and ask a lot of questions during times of crisis. I mean, there's a reason in AA that they have the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, right? There's lots of different areas where you can grow post-trauma. So I think the general message is that it's really a message of acceptance. You know, like there are going to be things about this that are the hardest things you may ever have to experience. And there will be things about this that are the most beautiful pieces of your life. And really sort of recognizing and owning that about a difficult experience instead of just trying to push through it. That's such a beautiful point. I know it's so true about my own experience. Jushanti, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to talk to you. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. 
And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.